Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> Okay, so like it's not really like another Manic Monday because you guys are listening to this on a Wednesday, but our Monday was insane, insane. Honestly, like our whole past week, so basically if you emailed us and we haven't gotten back to you, sorry, love you, but we have a little sidekick that I honestly think saved the day, still saving the day. Sidekick's name is Prima. We're obsessed. Like, we just, we are. And, like, what is Prima? If you're, like, just joining us now, you're like, Sam, Sam, Maddie, like, slow your roll. Like, what is this? It's okay. We got you. It is a doctor-formulated, clinically validated, high-performance level of products for skin, body, and mind. And it is just life-changing. So one of the things we use is their daily CBD capsules. And it is a game-changer. And, Maddie, didn't yours just, like, arrive today? I just got a fresh batch and I just can't wait, especially again for this week. Like you said, it's going to be wild. Last week was wild and sidekick couldn't be the more perfect word to describe Prima and the way she just, she comes to save the day. Not only with the CBD capsules for your daily stress or the nightly ones for a restful night's sleep, but let's not forget about the skincare. Because your girl is obsessed. I've been using the skincare for about two years now and have not stopped. It has been my other sidekick in the skincare realm. But you guys, the Enlightenment Serum, the restorative cream, and the night magic is incredible. Go to bed looking like a glazed donut. Wake up looking glowy and even toned. You guys, Prima, they are a clean, climate positive, and responsibly sourced company. And every single product is actually amazing. So 
Lucky for us, Prima is offering all of our listeners an exclusive limited time 15% offer with code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, shop around, and use GIRLGOV for 15% off your purchase and start feeling better, start looking glowy every day. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov the podcast. Happy Wednesday. We're back at it again. We're back by Coastal. Wild, wild, wild. Yeah, guys, Maddie left me. It's fine. I'm not having abandonment issues or anything. I have not sought help yet, but I may. Excuse me, because I've come to see you across the country <laughs> twice now, and I have yet to get a visit. So. I'm coming! I promise! <laughs> so, yeah. October. But we have a great episode today because we are covering a topic that... I would say it's pretty nuanced. Would you say? Oh yeah, nuance is its middle name. Totally, but super interesting, and I feel like it's just the future. Like we are the future here at Girl on the Go. We're bringing on this amazing guest, covering this amazing topic, and you guys are going to be the future with us today because that's how imperative this information is. Imperative, honestly, understatement. You know, we are in 2021, and technology just really leads our lives in so many ways, but in so many ways that I think we don't think about, but we don't think about like those larger structures in place. Or the little structures in place, like soap dispensers. Totally. Which get ready to have your mind blown by the fact our guest is about to drop later in this episode. So just stay tuned for soap dispensers because I'll never be the same. But I guess with that, we should tell you like what we're talking about, like, you know, who we're talking to, as much as we love a little abstract moment, we are talking with Dr. Desmond Patton. He is a professor at Columbia, and he really focuses his expertise on social work, but also AI. And so AI is really the term of the moment for this episode, and really talk about its intersection with politics, technology and politics, really this evolving sphere, and there's so much to it. So we'll, you know, get the ball rolling here. So let's dive in. Here is Dr. Patton. Of course, to get this introduction, to get this party started, we want to hear from you. What's your elevator speech? What's like, you walk into a meeting, you're like, hey, my name is, and this is what I do. Like, what what does that conversation look like? Yeah, so normally I would come into a room and say, I'm Desmond Patton, I'm a social worker, and I study digital technology and well-being for young people. That is so concise and such a perfect elevator speech. Like, teach me how to do that. I remember, like, in college when they make it, made us, like, figure out our elevator speech, I was like, mine ended up always being, like, 10 minutes long, even though I had, like, nothing on my resume. Like... <laughs> I have a lot of practice. (laughs) Yes, it's so good. (laughs) So good. Well, I am so excited to dive into this conversation. I mean, I think this is one that a lot of people probably don't know much about, which is great, which is always some of our favorite conversations. So to start, we're going to go through a little bit of this resume of yours. So as Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and the co-chair of the Racial Equity Task Force at the Data Science Institute, and the founder of SimED, is that correct? Tech? SimED. SimED. Okay, yeah. I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> Tech Incubator at Columbia. 
So your research uses virtual reality to educate youth and policymakers about the way social media can be used against them and like how race plays a part in that. So, so incredible. Explain to us how that works and just all the background there. I'm so interested. Yeah, absolutely. So I would probably start off with saying that as a social worker, I am interested in how people use social media as a new neighborhood to understand their lives, their challenges, their joys, and then trying to think about how do we use all of these sophisticated tools to make a difference. Part of the challenge, though, is that there's a lot of challenge, there's a lot of injustice, and then the technologies don't always work for the communities that I focus on. So I spend a lot of time hanging out with young Black Latinx young people, and oftentimes the tools that we're talking about or the social media platforms that we're talking about are great spaces for young people to, to express their everyday life, to talk about relationships and, and friends and clothes and music, but also pain and trauma. And all of those things are kind of coming up. And so I'm really interested in how do we use that to help young people. I would say that I'm, I'm less of a virtual reality person. I know that that's a part of the bio, but I'm more of an artificial intelligence person. So as a social worker, I've been working with computer scientists and data science using artificial intelligence and machine learning to read text and read images and try to understand the meaning that's in them. And then as the Associate Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which is a new job. I have a lot of hats at Columbia. <laughs> you do. But it's a new job. And I'm really just trying to make Columbia the, the, the space for conversations in, in, in race and tech. And so I really want to do a, a couple of things. I want to um, increase the amount of folks of color that are studying data science. I want us to have really hard and difficult conversations about race and data science that get us to more ethical technologies. And I want to think about the K-12 space. And I really want to figure out, well, how can Columbia go back and help schools to train young people to be interested in data science as well? Because I think that's going to make the difference. Totally. And I love what you said about neighborhoods and social media being those new neighborhoods. Yeah. It is so true. I mean, Maddie and I met on Instagram, right? Like yep. we yeah. bonded <laughs> over politics and our interest in the whole space and have also connected with so many other people there. And I think it's always, social media is such an interesting topic to me because it is like a double-edged sword. There's so much good that comes out of it, but there's also so much bad and figuring out where that goes from here. I mean, I think we were literally just also talking about Facebook before we hopped on and how like, Back in the day, like, I don't even have a Facebook anymore. Me neither. And that was, like, the main spot. You know, you had to post on someone's wall. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. The like, there was your embarrassing video. Like, all these things. And, like, think about the span in which that launched to now and how much that neighborhood has changed. And then I'm sure the reaction and how we work with that neighborhood really changes, too. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. And that's a really, really long-winded way of me asking, you know, how does your work really intersect with social media? How does it, you know, sort of change the game there? Yeah, so I have to start with the story because, you know, I came into this space as kind of a, you know, haphazard social media user. So I, I had Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I used Facebook to hang, to talk to family and friends and classmates. I use Twitter to follow celebrities and the same for Instagram and like people who cook and things like that. But 
as I was finishing my PhD at the University of Chicago, I was talking to young Black boys about safety. And they were talking to me about how they use social media for safety. And it was like, I was like, what? Like, why? And it became really clear that Twitter, so this is, you know, back in 2010, 2011, Twitter was a space where young people could have exchanges about music, about daily life. And sometimes when you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of violence, that also came into the conversation. And so these young boys that I was working with at the time were telling me about fights and beefs between rival crews that were happening on social media. And I became really interested and wanted to learn more about it. But the reality was there was nothing at all on the topic in our literature. And so I had to, uh, with some colleagues, begin to kind of develop some ideas and write about this, this issue of violence and kind of hard conversations that were happening on social media platforms. So that was my entry in this space. I'm, I'm not a technologist and I wasn't looking to study this at all. Yeah, wait, can you give an example too of like what, I don't know, like if I were looking at my phone, like what you really see on social media when you talk about that, like an example? Yeah, so the, the biggest examples are like grief and aggression. And they're really hard to understand because the language that I'm reading is highly contextualized and highly localized. So if you're not from the neighborhood, if you're not from the community, you probably won't understand the language. And what I would probably call it is a mix of like tech speak, young people speak, and African-American vernacular English. And one of the hardest things was deciphering lyrics because sometimes lyrics were just lyrics. So a young person would be on the L, which is the train in Chicago, and they're coming from the north side, their high school on the north side and going back home on the south side, they hear a lyric from Chief Keith and they're like, oh, this is cool. And they, and they would text about it. But in some cases, that texting of a lyric had deeper meaning. Sometimes it meant that whatever the lyric meant could be directed implicitly to a rival crew or a, a rival gang. And sometimes it was nothing. And I think that that was, has been the hardest part of my work is that you really have to be inside someone's head to understand the deeper meaning of their social media posts. And that's exactly kind of the work that my lab has been up to is partnering with young people to really unpack meaning in social media posts so that we can understand the meaning and actually be able to support young people. They might be calling out for help or looking for support. Okay. And so you're basically so a linguist as well. Or what I yeah. was going to say, too, it's like, it sounds like a subtweet. It is. There's so much. <laughs> Deciphering subtweets. Yeah, I feel like a linguist. <laughs> I feel like an archaeologist. Uh, it's like on a deep dive, and I find, like, these words and phrases that I don't mean. I try to look them up, and a, a, young, a young person has to explain to me what it means. So there's a lot of digging, a lot of trying to find out meaning. Yeah, totally. In terms of, okay, so the aggression and the grief that you picked up on that you've seen and of course you also mentioned that some of this language is very localized but are there any patterns that you've seen across the board versus like city nationwide etc yeah so i have primarily focused on the city of chicago and i think the biggest finding in my work is that young people who are living in some of the most violent neighborhoods in america have been using social media for help have been using it to talk about really hard and complex trauma and pain 
and they're being so so vulnerable online in ways that actually don't benefit them in real life and we saw this pattern where a young person would come on twitter they would post about this vulnerability this pain this trauma if it would been two days as that post would sit online then their posting behavior would become more aggressive and that behavior would become more aggressive because other young people who don't like them who are in rival crews make comments on that on that post make fun of that post and so over time they would have to defend themselves and then their posting behavior would become more aggressive over time so it it, it told me a couple of things number one is that these aren't random things that young people are really very thoughtful about how they use social media although it may not seem like it but there's some intentionality there and that too they're not inherently violent. This is not something that they're not using social media to, to be violent, that it is something that morphs over time when someone is making fun of a really painful event. So think about you know, your own Instagram and someone that you love dearly has died and then someone that you don't know is now making fun of you because of that death. That would make anyone angry. Totally. And so we would see a lot of behavior like that. But the challenge here, is that folks weren't focused on the grief and loss. So in the news and the media, we were only seeing black kid, violent, social media, black kid, violent, social media. Mm. You never saw young people who are living in really hard, in really challenging situations, who are seeking help and looking for support for their grief. Yeah. Period. Totally. Right? It's so like it's the a context is lost. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what's escalation like, too, because it's like, it goes, the way it's then presented, it's like zero to a hundred, but there's an entire story there that's totally missing. 100%. And then what's like the next step once, you know, you kind of identify this behavior or like kind of decipher what's being said, what's the next step as far as providing resources or taking action to help, to help those people calling out for help? Yeah, this is, this is where it gets really challenging because there are a lot of ethical questions and decisions to be made. So our overarching goal has always been to, to help outreach workers and social workers who are trying to prevent violence. And so we wanted to be able to get them some data around hard conversations and challenging conversations so that they can then send support, send outreach workers, send social workers, not police, to folks who want to help in this, in, in this space. They wanted, wanted to be able to help them do that. But there's a lot of ethical challenges there. Number one is do we have consent from users to be able to use their social media to do that. And while on Twitter in particular, I don't have to have your consent because you, you, it's a public platform and you kind of, you sign away your right on Twitter in particular, but it doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do. There's still questions of privacy. And then we aren't using these tools in white communities. And so there's a question around equality. Are we only using this to surveil black and brown communities? Are we missing, you know, folks like Dylan Ruff that murdered all those folks in Charleston? Are we missing, you know, the guy that shot all those folks in Pittsburgh who left these racist manifestos on social media? And so there's just a lot of ethical challenges and dilemmas. And so we have been focused on the science and really trying to make sure that we are doing things ethically by including community members and working with young people before we do anything else in terms of outreach and in terms of intervention. Because if this is misused, if we get it wrong, if we misinterpret something, then that can be used as evidence in a criminal justice yeah. case. And we can't do that. Yeah. 
That's such a good point. So interesting. So complicated. Yeah. And definitely seems like the future. But also to talk more about it, you know, this tool was cited in a U.S. Supreme Court case, Alonis versus United States. Can you kind of explain the story there, what happened there? And then also, you know, how basically because of that, if that could be kind of a game changer with using like tools like this in different court cases and such moving forward. Yeah, the, my, my memory of the details of the case are, are, are slippery at this point. It's been quite some time, but it really, it really is about lyrics and language. And so essentially there was a breakup and an individual started to post some really kind of challenging lyrics about an ex-girlfriend, I believe. And there's a lot of interpretation that these these post, his posting behavior was potentially threatening. And so the question becomes, how do you know what you see on social media is true or not? How do you know if this post is a threat? And so my work in this space has really been to kind of like help people think about contextual clues and ways of thinking about threats. But, you know, the late Justice Ginsburg said, as she was thinking about this case, like you really have to be in someone's head to know what they truly mean. And I think that that is always the hardest part about doing this work. And so my, 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 my research in this case is really trying to help people think about what are some contextual clues that we can be thinking about? So how do we, what are the different ways that we can think about threatening behavior and yeah. who gets to decide what's threatening behavior or not? Exactly. That's so interesting because like, you know, we think about too a lot of, you know, with gun violence in this country as well with this like conversation about threatening social media posts things that are being threatening online and how a lot of you know say mass shooting yeah. like mass shooters have been known to like basically straightforward say kind of what they're going to do or at least hint at it in pretty obvious ways especially in retrospect yeah. but you know until then how do you really decipher whether you know a kid's just kind of being dark and yeah you know, problematic or whether it's actually a real, real threat. So that's such yeah. an interesting conversation. Because it that makes me think about like phrases I say, like totally randomly, right? Like someone annoys me, I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to kill them. Like valley girl style, like heinous, but I do say that, right? And so it's like, then you think about, okay, well then if something happens mm -hmm. and then I'm in court, is that going to be used against me? Absolutely. Totally. It totally could be, right? Because it's like then the prosecution is going to look to create a story. And so I really see how like that becomes a larger thing. But I think to Maddie's point about some of these mass shooters, some of these absolutely like, domestic terrorists, like are there any phrases that they're using that are like super, that totally tip people, people off that it's like, oh my God, how did we not notice this? Or like, this is something we're seeing that like, maybe it's, you know, a way that, can sort of escape the privacy elements like anyone that says xyz thing also too for anyone who in their own life maybe sees a problematic tweet or post of someone they know that could be threatening like how do you decipher whether it's like legitimate too yeah so i get this question a lot and i really try to move away from like words or phrases that might be indicative because it's, it's too subjective because at any point as you just um, aptly described, I'm going to kill you can mean different things depending on tone, depending on who's saying it, depending on the time of day you're saying it, and yeah. all <laughs> these other things. And so pre-coffee. Pre, yeah, pre-coffee, <laughs> all those <laughs> things, right? And so I think what has been really helpful is to think about triggering moments and to think about behavior online, right? And so to think about, for example, like how do people become radicalized online? 
who is the typical user that joins a, radical, um, a radicalized group on a social media platform. And I think understanding some of those triggering moments, I just lost my job, I'm, I'm struggling at home, I need some outlets to just kind of, you know, deal with some of the problems and I don't know, I don't have anyone to talk to. You know, there's a lot of depression in my neighborhood, in my community because the jobs just left. Like thinking about like these moments that shape language, that shape imagery, I think are more important to really focus on in this space because they help, they help give you context. And then you can use that context to get a variety of meanings from phrases and words. But at the end of the day, you're still gonna want to have as close to an understanding of the meaning as possible. So I go straight to the source. I, I, I hang out with young people. I talk to young people. I ask them, I ask them to look at my data because it is too loose to not have that level of understanding. And I think that that, that kind of interrogation of language is not happening a lot, but yet it is always, not always, but oftentimes used as evidence without deeper interrogation. And that's what worries me. Wow. Totally. Yeah. Especially I feel like it's like, I mean, language evolves. That's yep. a long-term thing. But even thinking of like good old Gen Z and some of their phrases like cap, I'm like, what does that mean? But obviously <laughs> that's like a silly example, right? But like it is indicative of a larger problem of not knowing the context and not understanding, okay, how is this used? Is this a safe usage? Is this a weird usage? And what, what not? But I think the data element is really interesting, which really pivots to our I have a stupid question segment, which is also sort of backing us up a step and defining what is AI. Could you give us like a little bit of a rundown as to like, what what is that? Yeah, so it's funny because most of the time when people think of artificial intelligence, they think of like the scary robot that can move and do all <laughs> these like wild and crazy things. Take your man, take your job, like everything. Right, all the things, <laughs> right? And that's fun to watch, but it's not, that's a really like tiny aspect. So basically it is an umbrella term. And it essentially it embodies theory and development of computer systems that perform tasks that are normally required, um, that normally require human intelligence. So things like predictions and visual perceptions and speech recognition and decision-making. So these are the types of things that an artificial intelligence tool can do. In my work, I use a form of artificial intelligence called machine learning, which is essentially a set of algorithms or scripts that automatically read and learn from data. The data that I have been focused on has been social media, and that includes the tech and the images within social media. Wow, layered. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and kind of for our next question, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but, you know, like you said, it can, the perception of AI, it's like the robots are taking over, everyone run, hide. But can you kind of explain to you like the pros and cons of it, like the ways it can be used for good, the, the bad ways, but also like this conversation too of identifying threats and things like that. Yeah. So I, I think that when we ask, good questions of artificial intelligence, then it can make our life easier and efficient, right? And so when we think about decisions that we don't want to make that are hard to make, I think about banking and all the cool features that I get to enjoy from online banking. Usually that's powered by some artificial intelligence systems. However, the challenges come into play when there, we have not thought carefully about how this artificial intelligence systems will react and interact in society. So here are some of the challenges. Number one is that 
usually the folks that are developing artificial intelligence are from a particular demographic, and that's usually like a cisgender white male. And so we're missing whole swaths of communities that have different ways in which they move about in the world. So for example, you may not have a blind person that is developing an artificial intelligence tool, but they're using them. And so the, the, their experience with that tool could be extremely horrible because no one has, has spent time speaking with someone who was blind about how they might best use that. And so that kind of example is applied across the board. Oftentimes the data sets are not reflective and representative of our society as well, right? So we have this problem in the healthcare system where artificial intelligence tools are used to make decisions about who gets what resource. And a part of that decision-making has been, oh, if you, um, don't go to the doctor a lot. If you don't use the healthcare system a lot, then you're okay, you're healthy, you're fine, and you get a lower risk score. But what we also know is that black and brown folks don't have access to healthcare at the same rates as white people, that they, they, they're underinsured uh, or that they don't have insurance at all. And they are sicker than a lot of other people. And so, but that idea, that inequality, it's replicated in artificial intelligence systems, and therefore Black people won't get the same resources that they need to survive, right? And so these are things that are even are really hard to think about. And then there's something su super basic, right? If you ever, like, go to the bathroom in, like, a mall and you go wash your hands, there's an automatic dispenser. Well, what has been, what was happening is that when a white person goes, so usually it's fine. It just pours down, it comes, you wash your hand. But if a black person comes, the system doesn't recognize their skin tone. What? Right? So the soap, <laughs> right? It. The soap, well, you can't get the soap because your hands are You're darker. Kidding. And that is, again, another example of how these things are just baked into the system. But sometimes this is the problem with racism is that it's so insidious and baked in that it's hard to see. It, it is productive in a way that is not good, but it allows us to replicate these same harms. And so I think that we're in a really interesting moment where there's a lot of folks of color that are studying these topics. I'm talking about Ruha Benjamin and Andre Brock and Sophia Noble and Joy Bulawimi, all amazing folks that are helping us to think about some of these things. So it's a really exciting and critical moment. Wow. My is mind is... <laughs> but like, it, I mean, it, like it makes a lot of sense. Like I totally, if you don't have the representation in the science, why would you yeah. develop the science? Like I think people are also like, this is definitely, yeah. you, know, you know, come after me if I'm wrong, but I feel like people are generally pretty selfish. So they develop things for themselves and then usually don't think yeah. about, you know, right. how else it could be applied and who by who else. So I wish it, like, I'm surprised at the specific, yeah. like, element, but of, like, the larger issue, no. You know what I mean? Like... No, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You can break it down, like, just really systematic racism as a whole. You can literally break it down that small of where it reaches, and then you can go all the way back up, and it's everywhere. Well, for our next question, we want to ask, too, like, how AI is used by the government as well. Yes, yeah, so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how AI is used by the government. However, I am working with the mayor's office here in New York City around a, a particular use case for AI. And so I think more about kind of local level politics. So that's probably where I, I feel at home. And so right now I'm working with the mayor's office for criminal justice to think about the development of a smart tool that can hopefully help us to address pressing needs and inequalities for community members that are living in public housing in the city. And so what I'm working on in this particular case is that a lot of residents are using Twitter and Instagram and Snap to, to 
discuss some of the environmental conditions and challenges in their apartments, right? So they're saying there's a water leak and it hasn't been fixed for a month. And we all know what, what happens when there's a water leak, there's mold and mold causes sickness. And they're using social media to address these concerns, but there's no one speaking back to them, right? So how can we use machine learning and computer vision to understand the text that's associated with that? And the images that are associated with that and to inform a larger kind of study of these issues to inform how the mayor's office can make better decisions and build better relationships with NYCHA residents here in New York. That is super interesting and makes so much sense because I, I definitely feel like in the last few years I've seen so much more of an expansion of the use of Twitter and trying to, you've got a problem, whether it's a brand, whether it's a government, whatever it is, tweet at them, tweet until it gets someone's attention. And I also feel like news outlets also scan Twitter knowing that now, like the whole way it's operated is flipped. So it's really interesting that like the Blasio aside is actually <laughs> like taking this moment to try and learn something from it. So I'm excited to sort of see where that all lands and like where that, you know, sort of comes to full fruition. But that's fascinating. I'm like so excited about that. That's yeah, awesome. We'll have some findings at the end of the year. So I'll have to come back and tell you more. Yes. Also, like the local government aspect is yeah. huge too, which like I know you said you're like, oh, I only know local, but that's like I feel like such well, local a crucial also city. <laughs> well, yeah, but like that, I feel like local government is some was one of the places that probably needs it yeah. most. So I think that's great. I mean, from you know, the AI aspect also like just civic tech in general really popping up. It's going to be so helpful from literally just getting people food stamps to unemployment to now like, you know, being able to really incorporate AI to hopefully get people's voices heard. I think that's awesome. Yeah. It's fascinating. Thank you. Love it. All right. Well, I guess we can transition into this next topic, which I know we just did positives, but we're going darker. Sorry, okay. it's happening. <laughs> so obviously, I think we all like, knew where we were on like January 6th. Like not a great day for this country. Like just not, just not it. But of course, following that terrorist attack, there is a lot of backtracking still is as to, okay, who were these people that were there? What were they doing? Was this preventable? Like who was in charge? All of these questions. But one of the findings is that all these people were posting on social media. They're catching people because they were taking selfies on Snapchat and sending it to their girlfriends. Like the craziest of shit, I swear. But obviously some of this stuff predates them actually getting there as well. So do you, my question is in terms of social media and how it's being used, obviously sometimes for good, but also for bad, how is it being used as sort of a recruitment tool for bad and do you have any thoughts on like how that can change? Yeah, so I think that what we have seen is that people can find their community and they can find a network on social media, right? And so there are different ways in which an organization can post propaganda on social media and they're very like psychologically savvy, right? So they can tap into the very thing that you've been mad about, right? Like I can't get a date and they'll say, I can help you get a date. And, and, and that's very crude, but like, but that the kind of engagement that can happen. And so a lot of that has been built into these recruitment systems. A lot of these folks are just very savvy with social media because number one, I think they understand that most people are living their lives online and that most people are in need of some level of care or support. And then if you are the person that can provide that, they can help them activate around an issue that they have been 
suffering from for a while or have a problem with for a while, then that can be the mechanism to bring people in. And so we see a lot of that. I think that what we need to do in this space is really about understanding the, the role of social media as a recruitment tool and to understand what is it about the connection to social media? What is it about the ways in which people on social media can reach other people that pulls people in? And then I think we need to go back to what we know in terms of community engagement and connection and human relationships to actually be able to better support people um, in these spaces. Because a lot of what I think is, what I think happens is that a lot of people are radicalized, meaning that they come to the platform in a different state and they, and they move and morph into a, another state. And I think that there is a way in which we can use artificial intelligence to figure out that moment where you have now moved from just kind of jolly go lucky to now want to, you know, run up on the Capitol. It's not immediate. It's not an immediate thing for a lot of people. Isn't AI kind of what's behind though, like basically people being fed their own narratives that ultimately end up radicalizing them because like, you know, on Facebook, your conservative uncle is conservative, but then like over the years, the AI knows that he's conservative and they keep pushing him, you know, usually falsehoods that just continue to piss him off. And, you know, now we're in this era of QAnon and things like that. Like, isn't that ultimately the AI feeding us the things we technically want or just the things we would like to see in our reality. So the AI feeds on data and human beings shape inputs in data. So while yes, an AI can amplify the type of information or misinformation that you receive, somebody, some human being has made a decision around what input to keep, what input to delete. And I think that we need to really kind of wrestle with the types of data systems that are structured, what are our non-negotiables with how we structure data, who gets to be involved in that process, and then thinking about what do we do next in terms of do we keep creating these systems or do we need to shut it down or do we need something, do we need to reimagine what this can look like? And so I think we're, we're certainly in a moment where we've seen enough to really think about reimagining what a social media experience can be. And I, I am, super hopeful and excited that hopefully someday someone will create a social media experience that that is about well-being about fun and joy and creates features and collects data that promotes that as opposed to harm and danger totally because then i think of like the data input and it's like okay well like what does that look like likes comments reshares and it's like the more you use the tools the more it feeds back to you. So like you're your own worst enemy in the like weirdest of ways, even if you don't realize it, is like sort of how I interpret that. Right. So the designer has given you the tools that you then engage with. So I am telling you how you should interact. And a lot of that is based on psychology and who you are as a human being. But I designed that and you didn't engage it. So I think that we have to think about those design elements and how bias and racism and homophobia are built into these design choices that you get to enjoy or not enjoy. Yeah. And do you think that just kind of going off what you just said, do you mean that like to change it, it's going to, you said like taking reimagining it, would that mean something completely new coming along 
or is there a way to fix kind of the platforms that we already use to be more inclusive to be more positive like you said but you know there's obviously this kind of a whole like legal civil rights issue kind of right with like freedom of speech and all of that so you think it's gonna take just completely something new coming along or is there a way to kind of tackle what we already are seeing i think we need a holistic robust approach that includes all the things you just mentioned i think number one we have to get serious about inclusion in the development and creation and dissemination of artificial intelligence tools. So we need to think about who gets to be at the table, right? And who has, who has decision-making power around what we see and how we see and how we experience it. Then I think we need to break up social media companies. They're too big and they have too much control and let in new ideas, new perspectives, new experiences that, that, that can also compete with these other companies and let us pick what we want to enjoy and experience. So I think, you know, you know, the, the hottest thing right now is TikTok. And that's been really, I'm a TikTok fan. I stalk it. I watch it for three hours every night before I go it's to bed. It's a rabbit hole. It's a rabbit hole. And I think, okay, and there's something about that experience that I think has tapped into, you know, how we are as human beings. Let's have more opportunities to think about that, right? Let's have more opportunities to have competing social media experiences that are better fit for how we want to live our lives. I, I can block out literally, you know, harmful and hateful speech all day long, or I can go to it, an experience that, that doesn't allow it, <laughs> that doesn't promote it, that cuts it off immediately. So Totally. Yeah, that always, with social media, I'm always like, how on earth are these companies getting past monopoly laws? I obviously need to do a little <laughs> more research on that. But like that always like blows my mind. I'm like, how, yeah. how are we here? But in terms of violence currently, course like we're seeing unfortunately a huge rise in anti-asian violence we're seeing huge rise in anti-semitic you know verbiage and attacks as well how do you feel like almost in opposition we can use social media to counter some of these these rises in in violence and you know rhetoric yeah i think you know i I was just giving a talk today to digital organizers and one of the things i was talking about is like raising awareness about these issues and then developing campaigns that are most with multi-stakeholders, right? To, to bring in folks who really care about these issues to create different campaigns on social media, different hashtags to really bring about an awareness to some of these issues. But the issue is that none of these things make money, right? And so none of these companies, I, in my opinion, are ever going to really invest in this type of care, this type of digital care, because it doesn't increase the bottom line. I think that if we have a healthy user base that is enjoying the platform, that that should increase the bottom line. But that line of thinking has not trickled up top. So it's like going to take, yeah, some time, maybe some more advocacy, you know, just some of those things in the mix. But you're also just to like pivot this here. You're also the founding director of Safe Lab. So can you give us a little bit of like the 411 as to what that is, what its mission is? Yeah, absolutely. So the Safe Lab is a research lab at Columbia University. And essentially, we are a hodgepodge of social workers, data scientists, psychologists, community members, young people. And we are using social media and artificial intelligence to study topics around uh, well-being and trauma and loss and youth violence as well. And so we have a mission of being able to produce rigorous high quality research around some of the youth violence things that we've already talked about. We also run a bunch of programming. So we run an AI for all summer program where we bring high school students to Columbia for three weeks to learn artificial intelligence and social work. 
We run a user research lab for formerly incarcerated citizens to learn more about user research. So we work with reentry programs in New York City. And we just finished our four-week program where folks were learning about user research and also taking a coding class. And then we run a digital youth lab at the Brownsville Community Justice Center to teach them, those young people, about emerging technologies as well. And then we also kind of putting, putting our toes into policy. So we just wrote two policy briefs. One is about the end of, uh, of uh, 21st century digital policing and why that's problematic. And another one is about leveraging social work ethics and artificial intelligent design development. Wow. Wait, let's talk about that policy a little bit more too. I mean, there's a lot to unpack across all of those different segments, but I think that is particularly interesting, especially in this current environment. What does that policy look like? What's included? How, how are you guys kind of pushing that forward? Yeah, so first we, we in the paper, we're raising awareness to the misuse of social media's evidence in digital policing. Social media, also facial recognition, what we're calling into question is that oftentimes these um, tools are used out of context. They are used without any kind of ethical guidelines. They're used without any deeper interrogation of how they may misfire or misread context. And so we want to push forth a deeper look at these policies and really trying to help people understand that, you know, we got rid of stop and frisk in New York, but is this the new stop and frisk? Is digital policing the new stop and frisk? And so we're, we're more so raising questions, we're not, de not developing po policies, but re raising questions for policymakers to think more deeply about these issues. Yeah. That is really interesting to think about, right? It's like you might get rid of one bad policy, but it doesn't mean it doesn't sort of bump its ugly head up somewhere else. So, yeah. and of course, you know, you know better than anyone, you need the data to solve the problems. So absolutely, that is really, really cool. Definitely let us know sort of where all that stuff lands, whose hands it lands in too. I'm so curious as to sort of the trajectory of that paper itself. And of course, anything else in that space, definitely keep us in the loop. But I think this is the perfect spot to wrap the conversation. But before we go, we want to give you a shot to, of course, plug yourself. Where can everyone find you? Where can people find your work? Give us the, the rundown. Yeah, so we have a website, safelab.columbia.edu. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Desmond Patton. Amazing. Is there anything that like people can do as well to like kind of help tackle this issue like with you? Obviously, learning more is always a good step, but... You know, is there any other resources we can push out there? Yeah, so we're all about collaboration. We love collaboration. So if folks are working in tech companies, folks that are working in startups, folks who are working in nonprofits that want to partner on some of these things, let's do it. We're always in need of resources. We have so much programming. We need money to run these programs. So if people know of folks that are interested in supporting these types of programs, please let us know. I have some plugs for you after after we wrap here. Okay, yes. great. Thank you. <laughs> Well, amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Like, this is a conversation I knew nothing about and just like so informative. We really appreciate your time and highlighting this issue. So thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. On to top stories for the day. We have a few doozies today and some that will fill you with hope. And there are some that will make you want to hide under a rock. And that is this next one, because the Supreme Court is to take up a major abortion rights challenge. So basically, a Supreme Court agreed Monday to a showdown over abortion in a case that could dramatically alter nearly 50 years of rulings on abortion rights. 
So with three justices appointed by President Donald Trump, um, part of a six to three conservative majority. Yikes, scary. I'm running away. Literally sprinting. I'm sprinting. Sprinting, screaming. The court is taking on a case about whether states can ban abortions before a fetus can survive outside the womb. So Mississippi, which is asking to be allowed to enforce an abortion ban after 15 weeks of pregnancy, is not asking the court to overrule Roe v. Wade. But abortion rights supporters have said that the case is a clear threat to abortion rights. So according to Nancy Northrup, who is the president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, said the court cannot uphold this law without overturning the principal protections of Roe v. Wade. And so even if the court does not explicitly overrule earlier cases, a decision favorable to the state could lay the groundwork for allowing even more restrictions on abortions, especially in those conservative states, including state bans on abortion once a fetal heartbeat is detected at as early as six weeks. The case will probably be argued in this coming fall with a decision likely in the spring of 2022, which is also all during the campaign season for the congressional midterm elections. So that's also kind of like a notable thing to watch here is the kind of narrative and rhetoric, especially campaign and election (laughs) rhetoric, that is created and pushed forward because of this court case. So we'll definitely keep an eye on it. It's honestly scary stuff, but... It's wild. It's like, it's exactly what people that are pro-choice have feared forever and ever. And I think, you know, this is why there's so much emphasis on presidents and who they bring to the Supreme Court, because it matters. And the thing with how it's structured is they overturn it. These things can be in place for a very long time, right? Like, we're looking at what that landscape legally looks like for... 30 years, 40 years. The lifetime of these Supreme Court justices. So, yeah, a reminder how the Supreme Court works. You're in there for a lifetime. And then, you know, like we saw with RBG's passing, when that happens and the president will appoint a new justice of their choice. So it's very important stuff. And unfortunately, he who shall not be named got three justices he got to a point which is how on earth does that happen how on earth does the universe allow that to happen but also just going into another election season because let's be real it's always election season somewhere is this is a good case for why voting in local and state elections matters because you might not be able to control things federally but you may be able to help control things in your state so certain states have codified roe v wade some states are considering it So, for example, something might be reversed at the Supreme Court level on a federal level, but doesn't mean that that's the rule of law across the land in your state. So just think about that in terms of turning into your elections, especially if there's something you don't like at the federal level, you may be able to kind of push forward change at the state level. And I think this issue is no exception to that narrative. So go register to vote, go get them, get after it. But I guess we have to go we have to go international for a moment. We have to talk about a little foreign aid story, which I feel like really like foreign aid has been tip of our tongues um, since our episode focused on foreign aid as a whole. So go check that out. But in the meantime, we would just like to point out a little factor, a little this is like more of like a blip of hope. 
and this is about Biden boosting the world vaccine sharing commitment to 80 million doses. Hooray, celebrations, throw that confetti in the air. President Joe Biden basically said that the U.S. will share an additional 20 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines with the world in the coming six weeks as, well, this part's a little sad, but as domestic demand for shots have dropped and global disparities in the distribution cycle have grown more and more evident. The doses will come from existing production of Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson vaccine stocks, meaning the first time that the U.S. controlled doses of vaccines authorized for use in the country will be shared overseas. So they're going on their first trip, their virgin trip. It's fine. It will boost the global vaccine sharing commitment from the U.S. to 80 million, like I said. So getting getting those numbers up and hopefully this helps. Honestly, hopefully there's even larger commitment. That's what I personally am looking for. But I guess baby steps in this direction more than anything, I'm a little worried that people aren't getting their vaccine here. So there's that. That's a little more hopeful that hate crimes bill. Oh my goodness. Do we have a bipartisan moment? Should we ring the bipartisan bell? Because we need one. We should. Okay. Well, I'm going to go on YouTube after this and get a little bell sound effect. And I will ring our bipartisan bell right here. Okay, there it is. So here's here's the scoop now that we've rung the all-important bell. The House easily, thank God, passed legislation aimed at bolstering the country's response to hate crimes in the wake of recent violence against Asian Americans. Already approved by the Senate, the legislation passed the House in a 364-62 to 62 vote Tuesday, which who are those 62? We're going to have to look you people up. Like, seriously, we're looking you up. I just cannot with whoever you 62 are. But regardless, that vote has resulted in that legislation heading to the White House for President Biden's signature. And basically, this legislation will designate an official at the Justice Department to expedite the review of hate crimes. It'll also require the attorney general to issue guidance to state and local law enforcement agencies on how to establish online reporting, specifically for hate crimes, collect data, raise public awareness, and so much more as it relates to, unfortunately, this rise in hate crimes that erupted since the start of the pandemic. So hopefully this is effective. It's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. And it's also like the messaging around it is so huge that like, no, we're not standing for this. And hopefully we'll send a message to those who have just honestly been spewing any kind of anti-Asian sentiment at all, especially those who are thinking about being violent, is hopefully a message to them that, no, we this is not acceptable. And, you know, we have a bipartisan effort here to stop this, which is refreshing, right? So, yeah. But next story is uh, McCarthy's back in the news. I I don't know, like, we need to start making a list of, like, which... They're always fluctuating. I know, these, like, they GOP really are. Senators, Congress members, like, they keep fluctuating on my shit list, but this one is especially just, like, eye-roll moment because the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, he's a Republican leader in the House, actually opposes a January 6th panel that would basically investigate that deadly... January 6th insurrection that we all 
hate thinking about and hate (laughs) talking about. But so, yeah, he said Tuesday that he won't support a proposal to form an independent and bipartisan there's the bell, commission to study the deadly insurrection and almost certainly eroding most GOP support ahead of a vote and positioning his party as to oppose all these investigations like into this attack. So basically what that really means is that him just opposing this bill and opposing the panel is enough to send the majority, if not all of the GOP, to follow in his footsteps and not support that which is crazy because there's also a pretty significant just in this grand scheme of the way our politics are these days of republicans who voted to impeach trump because of it and so now there is this group who don't even want to investigate it don't even want to acknowledge it mccarthy said he wanted the new panel to look beyond just the insurrection and this violent uprising by the donald trump supporters and instead include and instead push to have the new commission also investigate other violent acts including protests last summer in the aftermath of the death of george floyd so now he's comparing he's not only saying let's not investigate this but he's comparing the protests last summer to a complete insurrection and siege and a treasonous act on our capital it makes sense like make it it make sense make it make sense So basically, McCarthy is calling the commission duplicative. Interesting. Did I say that right? Yeah. (laughs) And potentially counterproductive um, and said that given the short-sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America, I cannot support this legislation. That's apples and oranges. Completely. It's apples and like cucumbers. Apples and cucumbers. I love that. Craziness. We'll keep you updated on, on this bill and on this panel and what they what they get done here you know you'd think this would be another like bipartisan bell moment but apparently not according to kev so classic kev god damn it kev get it together but that is it for this week those are our top stories i hope you enjoyed this episode that interview and you learned a lot today but before you go should we give a little plug to our brand ambassador program because she is coming around the corner. She's she's like on her way. We have received a ton of amazing submissions from you guys. So thank you so much. We are going through those very diligently and we'll be in contact with you all very soon as we just finalize some of these next steps. But if you have not sent in your form, head to that good old link in our bio and our socials. It's a little Google form. It's a fun time. It's themed. Yeah, and if you... First, if you have submitted something, we will be in touch. We want to like set up calls with me, everybody. And also, if you have not submitted a form yet but are interested but kind of on the fence, also just feel free if you want to submit one and maybe ask some questions in the form. There's space for you to do that. Or if you want to just DM us and have a few questions before you, you know, pull the trigger and put in your submission form, let us know. We're all ears. And yeah, we're just excited. We're excited to get this, get this going. But... That is it for this week. I would really love if, you know, you sent this. Is anyone, like, having a family reunion this summer where they can, like, send around this, like, new podcast that they really, like, love? It's really informative. I forgot that family reunions were things. I genuinely forgot. Yes, definitely spread the word to family, to friends. And subscribe, rate review, follow us on social media, and we will be talking to you all 
next Wednesday. <laughs>